The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Gary Stroick. He's the Chief Investment Officer at WBI Investments, which is based in Red Bank, New Jersey. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thank you, Jordan. Good to be here. Let's just start with your uh, your background a little bit in, in the investment world and uh, the forming of WBI Investments. Okay. Well, WBI was uh, founded back in uh, 1984 as uh, Wealth Builders, and uh, that's where the WBI comes from, Wealth Builders, Inc., uh, and it was a uh, comp- we did uh, comprehensive financial planning for high net worth individuals, and uh, I joined the firm in uh, 1990. And in 1992, we decided to um, take on the uh, a uniform risk managed investment approach for our uh, financial planning clients that was focused on uh, risk management. Many of our clients had already achieved wealth, and they just didn't want to lose it. And so we decided we would uh, uh, come up with a disciplined, risk-managed system for helping them preserve what they had and uh, maintain the standard of living they wanted to in retirement. So that was our primary focus. And uh, that is the uh, foundation on which all of our subsequent investment approaches have been built. So why don't you just briefly describe what that risk management system is like and how that works? Well, uh, whenever we... um, uh, start a portfolio, we always take it from the perspective of the investor. What is an investment experience that these uh, uh, folks really want to achieve? It's not about chasing uh, uh, index returns. It's about giving them the standard of living they want and the investment outcome they can actually tolerate. You know, there's the, the idea that people can uh, just invest in any kind of environment and they'll stay invested. But we know that's not true. We know that from our experience. We know that if the investment experience is too volatile, people will make um, uh, fundamental mistakes, uh, put their money in the bank, and uh, never achieve their goals. So what we want to do is start with the investor, and we build a process that will uh, reduce their risk. We screen thousands of securities every night. We use computers to do this, fortunately. Thank goodness for the computer. And we evaluate them on the basis of a number of metrics we found that produce low uh, uh, risk profile stocks typically, and we build the portfolios around that process. Whenever we buy a security, we immediately uh, decide what would cause us to sell it. We uh, use a proprietary trailing uh, stop method to track the performance of the securities, and if they fall out of the range of our expectations, we sell them. The stocks don't know we own them. They don't care what we paid for them. We just track what we think would be an experience that will be successful for our investors. So we follow that discipline. If we have candidates and we have available cash, we buy them. And if they move outside of our range, we sell them. And one of the things that we're trying to do, um, Jordan, is to take the emotion out of the investment process. We find that the emotional responses to you know, changes in uh, the economy and stock market can cause people to make disastrous uh, decisions. 
and managers are, for the most part, people. So we want to make sure we, we take those same emotional um, effects away from our investment management process and follow the discipline process that we found um, has worked for us for many, many years for our clients. So in picking individual stocks, you, you have a target to buy, a target to sell, and a, a stop loss if it goes below a certain level. These are all based on fundamental factors or technical factors. What is creating the buy and sell target prices here? Good question. It's actually a combination of both. We evaluate a host of fundamental factors, cash flow, earnings, revenue, uh, the strength of the financial statements, and, and to that, that, that generates a list of appropriate candidates. And then we also apply some technical analysis to see if it's timely to buy it now. We, want, we don't want to buy something that is uh, maybe a good value but will be a better value down the road because it's still falling. We look for that price trend to actually reverse before we commit our clients' money to it. So uh, it's a combination of both the fundamental analysis of the security and then the technical analysis of its price behavior. It sounds like you're kind of a value investor. You're not chasing something that's going up a lot. You're waiting for it to come to a price you think is a good value. Is that correct? That is correct. Value is an important focus for us. We also look at dividends. Um, we pay a lot of attention to dividends. We like to get paid while we wait for good things to happen. And we like an element of return that we can count on. Um, you know, that check in the mailbox every quarter uh, as the company returns some of its profits to the investor. There's nothing wrong with capital appreciation. We like that, too. Don't get me wrong. But uh, to benefit from that, you have to get rid of the stock. So we like to be able to benefit from the stocks we continue to hold uh, and not just benefit from them when we get rid of them. So do all the stocks in your clients' portfolios uh, pay dividends? Not all, but it is a uh, factor that we take and, uh, and give some uh, serious weight to in the selection process. So what kind of returns has this, you've been there since the early 90s, what kind of returns have portfolios pr produced compared to, I'm not sure what benchmark, do you know it against the S&P 500 or what would be your benchmark and how, what kind of returns have you had using this technique? Yeah, the, it's difficult to um, find a benchmark because we will not, um, the S&P 500 is 500 large company stocks. We'll own, uh, and not all those stocks pay dividends. So right away we have um, some uh, difference because we'll have large, mid, small. We have international exposure. We'll include bonds in the portfolio. Um, we'll have commodity exposure sometimes in the portfolio. So really, it is uh, more of an all-opportunity type thing, but there's not such an index uh, that we can find, and uh, we don't want to just make one up uh, for tracking purposes. But um, our, our clients' experience in these portfolios, and we have a variety of them that are matched to whether you need current income, for example, or whether you're still looking to build your portfolio, they've performed much, with much less volatility than the market as a whole. And so what we found is that the accumulation of capital over time has been um, far in excess of what people who, uh, if anyone bought and hold it, one of those popular indexes over the past uh, 20 years would have experienced. Because we don't take the big declines, typically, that the market will hand you. You know, back in uh, 2000, after the NASDAQ had gone up 86%, it went down um, by almost 80%. And the problem with that is here we are 15 years later, and we're still not back to where it was back in um, 2000. So that kind of experience is, is what we want to try to avoid. It recently, as 2008-2009, the S&P 500 dropped by 55%. Now, 
I don't know too many people who will um, sign up for that and will actually uh, hold through that kind of a period. So, so what happened trying- to your portfolios in 2000, 2001.com crash and the 2008, 2009? Did you go to a heavy amount of cash before that all happened? Yes, we did. And, and uh, again, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, we have stops under all of our securities from the day we buy them. So what will happen is as uh, markets begin to deteriorate, we will accumulate cash. And because we have a value bent and we look for upturn in prices before we'll commit funds again, we tend to have a lot of cash while the portfolios are going down. And that helps us protect client capital so that we have more money to start with again when markets turn around. And so like March 2009, when things were low, you poured all the money back in right at the bottom? We were, uh, we were in uh, March of 2009, we were almost completely in cash in most of our portfolios. And by April, we were almost fully invested again. Wow, that's a pretty fast turnaround on that. Yeah, It is. But again, we have the same discipline on the buy side as we do the sell side. I can tell you that we were all very nervous. Uh, if you remember what it was like back in 2009 in, in, in the spring, uh, the world was ending and everybody was panicking, but our indicators were telling us that stocks were an excellent value and they started to move up. And so we followed the buy discipline and we were able to add things to the portfolio and that, that, uh, that turned out to be very fortunate. And roughly where are you in the current cycle right now? We've had a big rise in the stock market, S&P at a record high. Uh, what is your portfolio allocation now? Well, we have, um, you know, we have a lot of portfolios. We have four open-end mutual funds and 10 ETFs and different SMAs. But I will tell you that we have more cash uh, than, um, than is typical, uh, if, if that helps. Depending on the strategy, the more conservative strategies may have up to, uh, you know, 20% cash. Uh, some have a little bit more. Some have less. Depend- you know, some of the more aggressive portfolios are a little bit more fully of value uh, invested. So um, it varies, but we do have a little bit more cash than we typically do. Is that because you think that the market is stretched and, and is uh, not, not offering good value right now? Yeah, and, and I guess it's not so much my opinion. It's the quantitative process that we follow is just not turning up candidates to qualify based on our standards that we've developed over the past 20-some years. So um, if we can't find things to buy, we don't just buy. Uh, we don't let the money burn a hole in our pocket. We will wait for the opportunities. And, and right now the opportunities have not been abundant. And so uh, we've been uh, – the, the screening process is not turning up a lot of things for us to buy, and so we're not buying a lot of things. Even on the international front, we've had some big declines – like you're not rushing into Russia where things are very cheap, things like no, that. No, uh, and again, there's a case where uh, um, Russia's not going up, and, and uh, we would have to see a dramatic turnaround um, before we would have any interest in something like that. So things not only have to go down, but you have to show some sign of it turning around before you'll get into it. So you weren't in, in March 2009 at the absolute bottom, but by April it has started to turn up. That's when you start getting in. Is that the That's idea? That's correct. That's correct. We, we, we wait for confirmation. We wait for things to turn higher, and, and then we'll start adding to the positions. That's correct. Now, you have a series of exchange-traded funds. I think it's 10 exchange-traded funds. Is that correct? That is correct. So these are kind of mimicking the, the private portfolios of the separately managed accounts. Is that the way it works? Yeah. Um, what we were trying to do there, um, Jordan, was we were trying to take the separately managed account processes that we've been using for all these years and deconstruct them into uh, ETFs so that we could rebuild those things in a much more tax-efficient, diversified way and with better hedging opportunities. 
So um, we call that the enhanced SMA. And, and that was really the genesis and the idea behind launching the ETFs was a better way for our separately managed accounts to be managed. And so how has their performance been compared to the separately managed accounts? Oh, it's been good. Uh, we've gotten uh, better diversification of the portfolios. We have the opportunity in these uh, enhanced SMAs to hedge with option strategies to reduce risk. And uh, we can trade over a number of days so that we don't have um, to get in and get out across thousands of accounts on the same day for fairness. All those accounts are now aggregated into uh, an SMA uh, ETF, and that ETF exposure can be increased and, and decreased over a number of days. So it reduces the impact on um, our trade, of our trading on market prices. So we can get uh, very good execution that way. So what you're saying is you're taking money in the separately managed accounts, and instead of buying individual stocks as you did in the past, you're buying the ETFs that you created in the first place. Yes. Well, we still have the uh, traditional SMAs for the clients who, who prefer that, but uh, we've offered the enhanced SMA because of the tax advantages it offers, the increased diversification, the hedging, and the better execution, we think, on, um, on the security uh, buy and sell side. Would there be two level of fees on that? You'd have a fee for the SMA, and then the underlying fee for the ETF for an investor we, doing it that way. We credit back to the uh, SMA account any of the fees that we receive from our ETF, so as not to uh, double charge the account. I see. I see. Very good. Okay, good to know. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Gary Stroick. He's the chief investment officer at WBI Investments, which is based in Red Bank, New Jersey. Their website is wbishares.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. It's a sad fact that fraud is rampant in today's business environment. The headlines scream about once prestigious organizations falling victim to or crumbling due to the consequences of fraud. How do you keep fraud from affecting you and your business? Tune in to Fraud Talk with host Chris Marquet. Chris has over 30 years of fraud investigation experience, business intelligence, and is a renowned security consultant. Chris and his guests will inform you and help keep you from being the next statistic of fraud. Tune in Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m. 10 Central every Sunday. 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Gary Stroick. He's the Chief Investment Officer at WBI Investments, which is based in Red Bank, New Jersey. Their website, WBIShares.com. Welcome back to the show, Gary. Thank you. Let's just do some basics on ETFs for people who may not be familiar with them. What is the difference between an exchange-traded fund, an ETF, and a mutual fund, and why are ETFs becoming much more popular than mutual funds these days? Okay, well, uh, ETFs are a kind of mutual fund. The big difference is that the um, mutual, mutual funds only uh, trade once a, they're only priced once a day at the close, and ETFs uh, trade and are priced all day long. Um, the first ETF came out in 1993. Uh, it was the, um, what was called the SPIDER, the S&P SPDR, uh, tracked the S&P 500, uh, tracked that index. Um, and today, uh, according to the Investment Company Institute, there's $1.97 trillion in ETFs. There are over uh, 1,400 of them. And just last year, they grew by almost uh, $300 billion in assets, which was almost an 18% increase. Uh, they, they added almost $20 billion just in December. Um, so I think um, the, the big advantage they offer is the interday trading. People can get in and out of the position during the day. They know what the price is on the way in and on the way out. Um, on an open-end mutual fund, uh, from a tax standpoint, they can have uh, taxable gain carry forward. So uh, what happened in, uh, for example, there was a, in 2000 when uh, the market started to tank, people who had just bought open-end fund shares and then went uh, held them, found the value of their shares fell. But as the funds sold their appreciated assets to uh, pay for the liquidations, they realized capital gains, which the people who just got there had to pay the tax on. So, um, so they were paying a tax on a gain they really hadn't uh, earned in a certain way. Exactly. So but it can work the other way, too, right? If you have an open-end fund that has some losses in its portfolio that hasn't been realized and they liquidate those losses... You can have carry-forward losses, which shield gains. So it can work both ways. That's correct. And as a matter of fact, after the, uh, after the big decline, uh, you could invest in a lot of uh, uh, taxable open-end mutual funds and never have to worry about paying a tax because they were carrying forward the tax losses for years. Um, most of those have been consumed by now, fortunately. But um, so people didn't like the idea of, of paying, uh, some, paying taxes on somebody else's gains. Um, the the difference is in, in uh, ETFs, uh, they're treated a little bit differently from uh, a tax standpoint because of the uh, what the creation and redemption process of the shares. So when um, a lot of money comes in a uh, to an ETF, when people want to buy an ETF, what will happen is there are certain authorized participants, market makers, who actually create the shares. They go out and buy all the underlying shares, and they deliver them to the ETF sponsor in exchange for a share. 
and, and the same thing happens in reverse. They can deliver a share and get the stock back. So that gives the ETF the opportunity to control which shares they're taking in, what the cost basis of that is, and the shares going out. Long story short, it helps them mitigate that um, growing capital gain problem. So it tends You're to saying the problem with, with mutual funds, traditional open-end mutual funds, is if it becomes a hot fund and a lot of money pours into it, the fund manager has to buy shares at higher prices, which kind of hurts the existing shareholders. And then the other way, when the price drops and people sell the fund, they, the fund manager has to sell the shares at lower prices, hurting the existing shareholders, whereas that's not going to happen with the ETF. Is that what you're saying? Well, what I'm saying is that from a tax standpoint, the ETF um, can choose which tax lots to deliver to a, um, a, part, a market maker in exchange for shares. Um, so when they redeem a share, they can choose, pick and choose among which shares they hold to deliver to satisfy that redemption. Where in the open-end mutual fund, it tends to be, uh, we don't know who's delivering or who's redeeming. We just liquidate across the whole the whole uh, portfolio, pretty much. And and the fund is 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 uh, not uh, doesn't have the the same facility to reduce the that tax burden that's been building up on all the gains inside the fund. So that's not only a tax advantage, but it's also, as I mentioned, the, the uh, cash flow is hurting performance to some extent. If you have to buy high as more cash comes in and sell low as a lot of cash is going out, you don't have that kind of cash flow problem in an ETF that you would with a mutual fund. No, you don't have, you don't have the same kind of problem. But I would say that um, if the participant is out buying the shares, you are going to have some of that uh, price pressure um, when the money's flowing in or flowing out. It's, it's a little bit more indirect, but uh, at the end of the day, it's the same stuff that's being bought and sold. Um, and in the ETF, you just have a little bit better control over the uh, tax effect of all that, that kind of thing happening. And, and, and you know what's in the ETF much more than the mutual fund. Mutual fund has quarterly reports, but in between, you don't really know what they're doing. With the ETF, particularly if it's a passive kind of an index fund, then you pretty much know, you might not know the exact proportion, but you know the stocks that they've got. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, the, uh, as you say, the open-end funds only report quarterly. And uh, one, of the, one of the reasons that um, active funds, like the ones we launched, are so uh, rare is because of the lack of transparency. Open-end fund uh, managers who are making active uh, bets on this stock versus that stock don't necessarily want everybody to see their hand. They don't. They don't want to give away the secret sauce as to uh, what they're choosing and what they like. So they, they enjoy that anonymity that they only have to uh, pierce the veil of uh, four times a year. In the ETFs, everybody knows what you're doing every single day. So um, there is... So is that a disadvantage to you? I mean, the open-end people would say they don't want people to see what they're doing. In your case, they see every day. Is that a disadvantage if they're seeing you buying or selling a particular security? Well, we... we we don't want to like offer a challenge to people to try to try to figure out what we're doing, but um, I, I think because we are active managers using um, kind of a uh, an active stock selection process and a sale process that's based on our own trailing stop methods, it would be hard for anybody to know we're, what we're going to do ahead of time. And as active as we are, there's the chance that just about the time you finish building up a position, you'll notice that we've just gotten rid of it. In fact, you could have been buying it from us. So um, we, we think the level of activity we have and some of the trading uh, partners we have allow us to, to, to move without too much uh, slippage in, in the marketplace. What kind of a turnover ratio do you have with these funds? 
I'm sorry? What kind of a turnover ratio do you have in these funds? It comes and goes, but it's pretty high. I would say it's, uh, it's about 200%. So that means during the year, you're turning over the portfolio uh, twice completely. That, that's correct. Which is pretty high. I mean, that means there's going to be a lot of transaction costs in a fund like that. That, that is correct. Um, one of the things that we're happy about is the extremely low transaction costs that we've negotiated um, with our executing uh, brokers and partners so that, um, in fact, um, we trade in, in some of our uh, ETF accounts, we trade for zero commission. So um, we've been able to, with our size and with some of the relationships we've developed, we're able to uh, trade uh, with very, very little cost to the client. So at the end of the year, though, there's going to be a holder of your ETF at the end of the year is going to have a complicated tax statement because there's going to be a lot of buying and selling and capital, short-term capital gains and losses and income. Is that correct? That is Absolutely incorrect. As a matter of fact, one of the advantages of all this happening inside the ETF is that you bought the ETF and all you have is what you paid for it when you bought it and what you got for it when you sold it. There's one item on your tax return. All that activity, all that turnover, all that tax impact happens inside the ETF and it is locked away from your SMA account or from your brokerage account. So uh, that's one of the reasons that that we wanted to take the SMA experience, which was also active, wrap it up into these ETFs where all that stuff would be contained so that your tax situation would be incredibly simple and much more beneficial to you at the end of the year. So if you own these stocks in an individual account, um, then you are going to have a lot of capital gains and losses in the short term, whereas inside the ETF you are not, is what you're saying. That is correct. Inside the ETF, you own 10 ETFs or whatever you own, and if you still own them at the end of the year, you have no capital gain and no capital loss as a result of your transaction that you are buying and selling your ETFs. And because of the way the ETFs operate with their uh, creation and redemption process, you're probably going to have a very, very low uh, capital gain distribution if you have any at all. But there, some of them are designed to pr produce current income, so you will be getting... Do you pay out monthly or quarterly? What kind of dividends pay, do you pay out? We, yes, that, that's correct. We do have uh, two that are designed to throw off income, and uh, all of our ETFs pay monthly income distributions and, and annual capital gain distributions, if there are any. What are those two funds, and roughly what kind of yields are they paying, just roughly? Uh, the the uh, yield will come and go depending on how much cash they have. Uh, right now, that's about 15 to 2%. We have an income portfolio, and we have a high-income portfolio that focuses on um, a little higher dividend-yielding securities and a little bit uh, lower-quality bonds. So if it's, if it's higher-yielding stocks and, lower, and junk bonds, why is it only 1% or 1.5%? Shouldn't it be more like 4 or 5%? Well, we have a lot of cash. As ah. I said, right now we're concerned junk bonds also trade a lot like stocks because of the, uh, the business risk inherent in them. So when you have overvalued stocks in a volatile market, you're likely to have uh, volatility in, in the junk bond market. And uh, you'll, uh, anybody who's been following the junk bonds knows a lot of the junk bonds were issued by energy companies. And with the decline in oil prices and energy uh, company um, balance sheets and stock prices, a lot of those high-yield bonds that were issued by those uh, companies have been under a lot of pressure. So uh, it's not really been a good place to be. And we, we, as I said, uh, we won't just throw money at uh, asset category. We will only invest in it when we think it really represents a good value. So when the prices of junk bonds were down and the yields were high, and the same with high-yielding stocks, 
that same portfolio, if it was fully invested, would have had what kind of a yield? Oh, probably about uh, 4 or 5%, I would think. Depends on how much stock and how much bond. When we have a lot of stock, stocks are yield, high yield stocks are somewhere around 3.5% now, and high yield bonds about 5 or 6. So you would figure if you had a 50 50 blend, theoretically, you'd be somewhere between those two numbers. So the, from the shareholder's point of view, getting a lower yield like 1, 1 1.5% is telling them uh, you're worried about the valuation of these things and you're having a lot of it in cash to protect their downside, which That's is exactly better than, right. than investing it and getting a higher current yield because you're more worried about capital loss. That's correct. We, we, as long as we still have the capital, we can generate income for them. If we, if we lose the capital in, in, a, in a bad market, then, then what are we going to do for them? Uh, one, the capital is the engine of growth and the engine of income. If we, don't, if we lose the capital, we're not going to have the money to generate income for them in the future. So we're going to preserve the uh, capital for them, their money, until we see that the opportunities are, are safe and attractive, and then we'll put that money to work. We find that over time, that helps us grow the uh, value of the portfolios much more effectively than if we were just uh, blind to those changing conditions and, and uh, ignored the risk. So preserving capital is your, your primary thing, and then the income and the capital gains comes on top of that, you're saying? Exactly. For us, there's only one important thing. How much money do you have? How much money do you have, and are you going to have what you need to, to meet your important life goals? And everything else is secondary to that. Taxes are secondary to that. Return is secondary to that. Income is secondary to that. Obviously, we want to produce all those things, uh, low taxes, high income, high returns, but not at the cost of losing your money for you. Very good. All right, we're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Gary Stroick. He's the chief investment officer at WBI Investments, uh, which is based in Red Bank, New Jersey. Their website is WBIShares.com, which talks about their exchange-traded funds. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific time. Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m. 10 Central every Sunday. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. 
plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. How is your plan going? Could you use a little help on your path to success? Why not step up and play big? Join host Chris Ruisi for a show that will help you identify the possibilities that await you. Too many people succumb to just being average when they could be exceeding average without too much more effort. It's time for you to become exceptional. Raise the bar to your success. Basically, it's time for you to step up and play big. Join Chris Ruisi every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Gary Strowick. He is the Chief Investment Officer at WBI Investments based in Red Bank, New Jersey, their website, WBIShares.com. Welcome back to the show, Gary. Thank you. Now, we've been talking about exchange-traded funds, ETFs. There's also something you deal with, which is called ETNs, which is an exchange-traded note. Explain what that is and how is that different from an ETF. Okay, well, an exchange-traded note um, is, is unsecured debt of the issuer, and its value is pegged to an index, whatever the index is that is used to um, define it. So if a company wants to um, uh, promise you the return of the S&P 500 and they sell you basically an IOU, a note, there's no asset underlying it other than the credit of the issuer, but there's no tracking error because uh, one of the things you hear about ETFs is, well, the market did, the index did this, but the ETF itself did something less than that or more than that, whatever. It didn't track. Well, there can be no tracking error in the ETN because the ETN value is pegged to that index. Whatever the index is worth, that's what the note is worth uh, by definition. The, the, the downside to it, of course, is that there is, uh, it, it has uh, just the promise to pay of the issuer. So while an ETF will have assets, it'll have stocks, bonds, whatever, it's a fund that owns all those things. An ETN is not a fund that owns all those things. It is the promise of an issuer to pay you on the basis of the value of some uh, reference, like the index. So if you have a similar thing like the S&P 500, why would you want to do an ETN over the ETF? Because it tracks better? Or what would be the pro and con of one versus the other? Yeah, they, I think where they are more popular is where they um, – where the the market is less liquid, I don't think it's as popular with the S&P 500. But you can also do some esoteric things. There are some companies that will say, well, whenever the S&P 500 is above its 200-day moving average, we'll, be the, we'll give you the performance of the S&P 500. And when it's below its 200-day moving average, we'll give you the T-bill rate. So they can, they can make it whatever they want. And the other advantage is that some ETFs invest in things that um, – have some tax complications. So uh, some are organized as uh, partnerships or grantor trusts, and uh, people will get the dreaded K-1 from their investment at the end of the year. 
and the K-1 is your partner's share of your income and deductions and stuff, and you have to report that on your tax return. Often those things come out fairly late, and people who are not aware that's coming will have already filed their tax returns, and then in the mail come all these K-1s that they didn't, or grant or trust letter reports. They didn't know they were going to get that, and and now they've got to uh, take that into account and, and hold off on their tax return or file an amended return or whatever. So, so in the ETN, you're going to get a K, you're going to get a K one if you have an ETN. Well, no, no, uh, you get a K one with certain types of ETFs. If they invest in um, commodities, for example, or they invest in so, uh, some currencies, you th- those ETFs are actually organized as partnerships, and those partnerships, because they're a partnership, will issue a K one. An ETN has the benefit of being able to invest in those same things through the index, and you get no K-1, you get no other tax reporting because it's simply an IOU, it's a note, it's a bond, if you will, and so there are, there's no complicated tax reporting in some of these um, unusual esoteric-type underlying investments. If you invest in them in an ETF, you may find yourself getting the K-1s. The, ETF, the ETN sidesteps that by simply being a note, and so there is no partnership, there is no K-1, there's no extra tax reporting. Are there some ETNs that have some pretty high yields for people wanting current income? Um, there, it depends on the – there, there are ETNs that um, uh, offer uh, exposure to income, but I wouldn't say that they're necessarily higher yielding than the ETFs that invest in bonds. I don't know that that's true. Usually the, the angle on an ETN is that it avoids some problems that you would otherwise find in the ETF counterpart. And that tends not to be as true. Uh, you know, an ETF and, uh, would pursue high-yield bonds just as easily as an ETN would. ETN would follow some high-yield bond index, for example. So in general, there's this big argument between passive funds, ETFs and index funds, where they're basically trying to match an index, versus active funds, where they're actively trying to beat the index. Uh, the current people would say, that you know, it's almost impossible to beat the indexes over any long period of time, so don't even try. That's why so much money is going into passive investments. Is, is that right? Should you pretty much give up and just try to match the index and feel happy? Uh, well, we don't think so since we manage active funds. Um, I, I, I think that the, 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 uh, the notion that um, uh, people can invest in passive indexes, uh, the, the active managers tend to do better in down markets. What happens is when the markets are rocking and rolling, everybody wants to get the return they could have gotten in the NASDAQ. But when the markets are tanking, they all want what they could have got at the bank. So the problem is that if you're just doing a buy and hold of a passive index, more than likely experience shows when the markets turn down, and they go down fairly often, 20% declines happen with uh, much more frequency than people tend to remember, Uh, people will become discouraged, they'll sell their investments, Instead of buying low and selling high, they get excited when the markets are moving up. They buy high. After the markets tank, they sell at the bottom. And while the market passive indexes may do well over time, the people who tried to invest in them tend not to do nearly as well. So, uh, you know, people do things. Uh, there's a whole school of finance, behavioral finance, that tries to explain the way people actually behave versus the way they should behave in theory. And uh, people make mistakes. People do things that aren't in their best interest. Um, doctors will tell you, you know, don't smoke, uh, get exercise, eat right. People smoke. People don't exercise. People don't eat right. Uh, the same thing is true with uh, investing. People know that they should be patient or they should do this or they should do that. 
but to expect that they're actually going to do it is, is I think, uh, a mistake. I, th- I think the argument about active and passive, you could reframe that to responsive and unresponsive. And I think if I'm driving, I want to be responsive to changes in conditions. I want to know if the road is curving or not. I don't want to just point straight ahead and hope for the best. Eventually, in the long run, on average, I'll get to the destination no matter how many people's backyards I drive through. That's (laughs) not the way I want to manage my money. I want to take into account changing conditions. I want to adjust the portfolio. In the process, I want to deliver people an experience that won't cause them to despair, won't cause them euphoria. They'll be able to stay with it over time and gradually grow that capital that we know is the secret to them, or that we think is the secret to them actually achieving the life goals that are important to them instead of chasing indexes, giving up periodically, and getting excited sometimes. We just don't think that works long term. So you're saying that what people publish are these overall indexes where the passive index, S&P 500 and so on, are beating the active managers but that's assuming people are staying in the whole time. You're saying the reality is that with these passive indexes, they're buying high and selling low and actually not experiencing that outperformance at low, inc- uh, low fees because they're not there at the right times. Is that right? That, that's correct. I think the, a passive manager would tell you if you can't stand, he could out of the kitchen. But what, what we think is that you know, let, let's give people an experience that's a little bit uh, friendlier to them. You know, if we, people uh, do bad things and they get cancer, you can say, well, the heck with them. They all visit. Or, or you could try to cure the cancer. And, and we think that the behavioral mistakes that we know about, it's not a mystery anymore that people are going to do these things. So why don't we try to address the investment cancer that's causing people to not achieve what they want out of life? So that's our view. And a lot of people don't feel that way, but um, you know, that's what makes markets. That's why there's 1,411 ETFs. You can choose whatever feels comfortable to you. And um, if you choose to have a responsive approach, we'll try to do our best to help them. Now, there's something called liquid alts or alternative investments. Uh, are those things you offer? And what is the advantage of doing a liquid alt over one of these ETFs? Now, I think liquid alt and smart beta, uh, what those things are, I think, is uh, kind of a hybrid approach to active management that stops short of active management. So instead of having a cap-weighted index like the S&P 500, where, you know, Apple is a huge part of what happens in the S&P 500 because it's such a big company, $700 billion company, whatever it does really drives a lot of the index performance. Other uh, indexes have come out that say it should be based on dividends or it should be based on earnings. It should be earnings-weighted. The company with the biggest earnings gets the biggest weight, regardless of its size. And a lot of these things are based on research so that some of these fundamental values, like um, a good value or a big dividend or strong earnings, actually perform better than just being big versus being small. And, and those indexes are really what the smart beta thing is all about. It's a custom index that's based on weighting on some criteria other than the market cap of the companies. It's periodically rebalanced. But it's not really classic security selection that's found in open-end mutual funds. It is trying to come up with a more rational way of investing passively on the basis of something other than the size of the company. So are there smart beta ETFs that you use that you think this is a good idea? Uh, If I were going to use a passive ETF, I think I would look at some of the smart beta alternatives uh, simply because uh, I'm not a big proponent that the bigger cap size necessarily uh, demonstrates good future prospects. 
Uh-huh. So you think that does make some sense to do that? I, I yes. think if you're going to be a passive investor, they, they're worth looking at. Yes. Very good. All right. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Gary Stroick. He's the chief investment officer at WBI Investments. They're based in Red Bank, New Jersey. The website to find out more about their ETFs is WBISHares.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What does conscious leadership mean to you? It unites organizations instead of dividing them. By exploring commonly-based business challenges, it guarantees an increase in your bottom line. Tune in to Minding Our Business, Creating a Spiritual Economy with your host, Nadine Rogers. Each week, we'll hear from business leaders and learn from their strategies. We'll talk about personal and organizational best practices that you can learn from, and we'll hear from you. Minding Our Business airs live Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Gary Stroick. He's the Chief Investment Officer at WBI Investments, based in Red Bank, New Jersey. To find out about their exchange-traded funds, it's WBIShares.com. And uh, Gary's actually done a book called All About Dividend Investing, we're going to talk about next. And the website to find out about that is WBIInvestments.com. Welcome back to the show, Gary. Thank you, Jordan. So in the book, you've got All About Dividend Investing. I mean, this is a time when people are earning extremely low yields, if not no yields, on cash alternative CDs, money market funds, savings accounts, and so on. What is the argument to buy dividend-oriented stocks in today's market? Well, I think um, dividends have a tendency, they give you the opportunity to participate in growth of a company uh, if its profits grow, if it grows over time, if it becomes successful. The companies that pay dividend are sharing back to the owner some of that money. 
you know, if you and I opened a shoe store and we didn't take any money from it, uh, people would wonder why we were doing it. So the same is true with any other business stocks or ownership of a business. Now, a lot of companies reinvest, especially younger companies. They take all the profits, they plow it back, they try to grow the company. But someday, if I'm the owner, I would like to receive some of that income to me as a, uh, in the form of a dividend. The, the, um, the alternative for income are things like the, the savings accounts, the CDs that you rightly pointed out are paying almost nothing right now, and fixed income. Well, there's a reason that bonds are, are called fixed income is that that income that you get is fixed. doesn't matter how well the company does after you buy the bond, you're going to get what they promise to pay you. Imagine this, if, uh, uh, if you got a raise and all of a sudden the people who hold your mortgage came back and said, no, I want more money from you now because you're making more money. Well, that's, you wouldn't do it. Well, the same thing is true with the companies. They promise to pay you. You lend them the money. They promise to pay you. And no matter how well they do, you're happy if they do well. It means they're more likely to pay you back than not. But you're never going to make more money than what they've agreed to pay you. And uh, it's hard for people to remember, but sometimes we have periods of inflation. We just haven't had it lately. And even at low inflation, you know, the money they promise to pay you doesn't go up, but your cost of living does. And that's especially true in retirement where you have cost of living things uh, that are uh, influenced greatly by things like uh, health care expenses, for example, uh, medication. So um, it's important for people, especially if they're retiring, to be getting an income stream that has the opportunity to increase over time. And that's really been the key to dividend investing over time is companies tend to, if they're successful, increase their dividends year after year after year after year. And that helps investors who are collecting those dividends keep pace with that rising standard of living, the rising cost of living that they're going to face over time. So is that one of the main things you're looking for in dividend-oriented stocks are stocks that raise their dividend on a consistent basis? You have in the book, for example, a list of what you call the dividend aristocrats. Those are companies, I guess, have raised their dividend consistently for many years. That's correct. One of the things, first thing you want to do is if you buy a company you want to make for the dividend, you want to make sure the dividend is safe, that they, the day after you buy the company, they don't cut the dividend. One of the advantages of something like a dividend aristocrat approach is that these companies have a long history of being able to. They're successful enough that they have been able to, over time, to increase their dividends. That doesn't mean they're going to be able to continue, but the chances are pretty good. If they've been able to do it so far, they will continue if they can. And it shows a management that is committed to the idea of passing on some of the profits of the company to the owners, the people who actually own the stock, and uh, they're going to do that in the form of dividends. Now, there are some particularly high-yielding stocks. Lately, these master limited partnerships have been very popular, for example, uh, utilities. In general, the high-yielding stocks have done very well in this environment because we've had low and falling interest rates that makes them look better. Is that an area you would pour a lot of money into now as the particularly highest yielding stocks? I don't know that I would pour a lot of money into it. I wouldn't ignore it as an asset category, but I think that um, you have to be sensitive to the fact that what goes up can come down. And if they benefited from low interest rates, they will disproportionately, there's a higher probability that they'll be hurt when interest rates start going higher, should that ever happen. So I think it's important, again, to be responsive to the changing conditions. If you've got a boatload of utilities and interest rates are going up, you may be surprised with what the value of your utilities are doing. You may have to move to another area. So I, I don't think it's a buy-and-forget-it type of investment. 
but I do think that there are uh, uh, plenty of opportunities to collect dividends from solid companies that continue to pay them. Do you expect interest rates to rise in any significant way uh, relatively soon? Not relatively soon. I think some of the global pressures on interest rates are likely to persist. Um, you know, there are negative yields in Europe um, right now on, on government bonds. So our yields, as low as they seem to us, must seem like a bonus uh, to foreign investors. And when you consider that the dollar is also appreciating, uh, partially because of the demand for our bonds, people have to buy the dollar to buy our bonds. So that pushes the dollar up. But that dollar also in, increases the return that they are receiving, the foreign investors are receiving in their local currency terms when they convert it back into their currency. Not only are they getting the higher yield, they're getting the gain in the dollar. So um, I see that as long as there's uh, pressure globally on interest rates, it's going to be very hard for our interest rates here in the U.S. to rise materially. I'm not saying that the Fed won't make some token moves to try to uh, add confidence and restore what they call normalcy to the, um, to the monetary policy that we have here. But given the global environment, I find it hard to imagine that we're going to have a big run-up in interest rates anytime soon. So that means the dividends on the S&P 500, a lot of stocks are well over the long-term treasury is about 2%, a little bit less than 2%. There's loads of stocks with yields of 3 4 5%, much higher than that. Absolutely. Is that what you'd be focusing on these days for, for income-oriented investors? For income investors, I absolutely think that um, you should be investing in dividend-paying stocks because that is a great form of income. You know, whenever you invest in a stock, any stock, you're taking a leap of faith. But with a dividend, you get a parachute. No matter what happens to stocks, you're getting that element of return, that check in the mailbox, and, and that's something that shouldn't be ignored. And for people who need current income, you're getting the income that's promised you today as long as the dividend's not cut and the company does well. It's a very good chance that dividend amount will increase over time. I just think you can't fall asleep on a dividend-paying stock. Companies do fall out of favor. They have competitors that beat them. And uh, you, I don't believe you can just ignore changing conditions, even if you have something that looks like a good, solid company right today. Inside an IRA, particularly a Roth IRA, where the money is growing tax-free, is it better to have dividend-oriented stocks and compound the dividend, or is it better to have faster growth companies where all the capital gains would be tax-free? Mm, I think capital gains, if you're not turning over your portfolio, are, are tax-free outside the IRA as well. So uh, it's the turnover that creates a taxable event. Uh, I, I think if you're going to have an active strategy that has a lot of turnover in capital gains, that's best to be inside the IRA. And the dividends, which have a tax advantage under current tax law, dividends are taxed at a lower rate than bond interest or CD interest or uh, money, or, money or, your, or your salary, for that matter. It's not taxed as ordinary income if you, if you uh, hold the, the, the stock long enough to get the uh, dividend tax treatment. So um, for, uh, I would say, if anything, the dividend-paying stock should be held outside the IRA. And the, uh, the things that generate ordinary income, like your bonds and any actively uh, managed stocks where you're focusing on growth and you're going to be turning over these high-growth stocks, those are probably left uh, better off in, inside your tax-advantaged accounts. What are some of the big misperceptions people have about dividend uh, stock investing? I think they, they underestimate how much of the total return of the stock market comes from dividends. Historically, it's been about 40% of the return of stocks. 
So, you know, you, you hear that uh, over long-term stocks return about 10%, or they used to, um, but if, if 4% of that has been dividends, you'd be, I think, foolish to just ignore that as part of the, as part of the important element of the return. So it's not as exciting to get quarterly dividends compared to, like, Google or Apple or something that's shooting to the moon all the time. But you're saying that a lot of people are kind of missing something by having some of their portfolio not bearing these boring dividend stocks. Sure, and you can diversify your portfolio with dividends. You can do dollar-cost averaging with dividends. You can buy more shares. Uh, you, you can spend the money if you need to. There's a lot of advantages to getting that money back in your hands to address some of your financial needs, even if it is just to invest. Uh, how, how about taking the dividends from your dividend stocks and buying growth companies with the dividends? You know, there's all kinds of things you can do with that money, the profits that are coming to you from the companies you own. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Gary Stroick. He's the Chief Investment Officer at WBI Investments, based in Red Bank, New Jersey. If you fi- want to find out more about their exchange-traded funds, that's at WBIShares.com. Uh, to find out more about his book, which is called All About Dividend Investing, and the other things they do, that's WBIInvestments.com. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Gary. Thank you, Jordan. It was my pleasure. Thank you, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.